Good morning again, Redeemer. And uh, if you're visiting with us, thank you. And we make it a practice here to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, the Bible was uh, written to be uh, read where meaning and structure and topics, uh, they, they are meant to sort of work together. And so we're working through the book of 1 Corinthians and we're going to be talking about sex in marriage is gloriously good. And I imagine that half of us in this room are not married, and that's okay. Uh, marriage is good, and singleness is good, and sex and marriage is good, and abstaining from sex when you're not married is good. It's all good, and uh, it's okay. My, my single people, in a, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be unpacking what Paul says as a single person about the goodness of singleness. But this morning, we're going to talk about sex. In marriage, it is good. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you for uh, the way that you uh, meet us. Thank you that there is nothing under the heavens that we should concern ourselves with that are not found here. And thank you for creating sex, and thank you for the goodness that uh, it, it's found in it, and thank you that we can have these conversations even in the company of our children, and that their worldview can be changed, not by what they hear in music or what they see on TV, but from the creator of sex. And so thank you for the joy to um, broach this subject. And Lord, we often uh, come to passages in Scripture where we admit our own failures and weakness and need. And so, Lord, I pray for grace, both for me and for the hearers, that we might be built up in holiness and truth. Speak through your servant. Bless your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is 1 Corinthians 7, and your bulletin says chapter 7, but we're actually going to stop at chapter 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Amen? Theologians make the distinction between sins of commission and sins of omission. A sin of commission involves doing something that God forbids. A sin of omission is failing to do what God positively commands. And that's a helpful frame. Last week, sins of omission were being committed. Men were going against the word of God and sleeping with prostitutes. They are committing adultery. That's a sin of commission. This week, 
Paul is unpacking a sin of omission. That when God commands sex in marriage, that some were actually saying and living like they don't need to obey that. And that is a sin of omission. Here's the thing. We look at this and we see this church full of those who actively sin by committing sin and those who sin by omitting to do the good things that they're supposed to be doing. And we say that that's just them, but it's not just them. I've been in pastoral ministry for almost 20 years now, and I've pastored teenagers, and I've done a ton of premarital counseling with college students, and I've officiated hundreds, maybe, of weddings. And here's what I've seen play out in front of me. I've walked with couples when they meet Jesus and they're 18, 19, and 20. And then they meet someone else in our ministry on campus and they propose, right? And we've helped plan proposals. And then we've done premarital counseling. At one point, we had like six weddings and they were all about to happen within the space of three months. And so we decided to do a premarital small group in our house every Sunday evening with these six couples. And it was fun and awesome. But here's what we learned quickly, that those young 18, 21 year olds, they struggle to keep their hands off of each other. And they love Jesus and they love their future spouse. But they were tempted. Right now, fast forward and that same couple six years in marriage, who couldn't keep their hands off of each other when they were engaged. Now, guess what I have to do as a pastor? Now I got to actually tell you to make love. You, you catch it. Some of y'all get it because you know that that's what happens. And it's exposing the human heart. When God says flee sexual sin, we want to flirt with it. And we justify because we're engaged. And then when we have God's full blessing, guess what we have to do? We have to give counsel like, hey, I know you got kids and I know you got a job. And I know you got hobbies and I know you got friends. But you two need to date. And you need to make love. You see what's happening with the human heart. We're just like the Corinthians. When God says no, we go for it. And when God says yes, we deprioritize it. What I want to talk about this morning is the goodness of sex. It is good. It is a gloriously good gift that God gives to us. And I want to remind some who are married, this is good. It's a good part of your marriage. And for others who've never heard sex talked about from the Bible or the pulpit, I just kind of want to instruct you, file this in your back pocket, let this shape your worldview, and we're going to jump in, all right? All right, here's my first big point. Sex in marriage is gloriously good, and it deeply pleases the Lord. Sex in marriage is gloriously good, and it deeply pleases the Lord. Now, we're at an important scene in 1 Corinthians 7, and this is why I think it's important. You might remember 1 Corinthians 1 
when Paul begins to write this letter, he says, it's actually been reported to me by Chloe's household that this is going on. If you go back and look at 1 Corinthians 5, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual morality among you. And so think about the apostle Paul. On one hand, he's hearing about what's going on in the church. And so the first part of the book, I think 1 Corinthians 1, all the way to this chapter, he's attending to things that he has heard. But then this chapter, there's a turn. Look at, look at how our section begins. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So now Paul in the letter is addressing the things that the church asked him about. And so think about Paul as a pastor. They want to talk about the stuff in 1 Corinthians 7 through 16. What they want to do is ignore what's happening in 1 Corinthians 1 through 6. But Paul, as a pastor, he says, look, you got felt needs, and I'm going to deal with them in chapter 7 through, but you got unfelt needs, things that you don't want me to talk about that's destroying you, and we're going to talk about them first. And so you see this refrain over and over again, now concerning these things. Paul says it uh, about the betrothed. Chapter 7, verse 25, he talks about them wanting to know about food offered to idols. Chapter 8, 1, they want to know about spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, 1, they want to know about this collection of the saints. Chapter 16, and Apollos. So what Paul is doing now is dealing with their concerns. And some were actually saying, that's why it's in quote in your Bible, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so that's what they want to know. Paul, we've been hearing and talking that a man having sex with a woman, that that's, that that's bad. That's not good. What do you think about it, Paul? And Paul's answer is it depends. If you're not married, then yes, it is not good for you to sexually touch and to sexually be engaged with someone who is not your spouse. But here's the caveat. If you are married, then it is not good for you not to have sex with your wife or your husband. You see his logic? It's gloriously good. Now, notice what Paul says. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights And likewise, the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There's a lot here. First, Paul's vocabulary is clear. Sex is good in the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. Second, Paul does not approve of polygamy. He says a man should have his own wife, singular And a woman should have her own husband, singular. Third, Paul understands that sexual pleasure and sexual intimacy in marriage, it's a right for both participants, not just the man and not just the woman, but for both parties in the marriage. Did you catch that? The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. And this is interesting because in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's going to talk about rights. He says, look, I'm an apostle. I have a right for food and drink. I have a right to take a believing wife along with me. I have a right to expect payment from you 
for ministry. And Paul says, but I have not made use of any of my rights so that I might preach the gospel to you free of charge. So Paul is Mr. Poster Boy of rights. And he is saying there is a place for us to set aside our rights for the good of the body. But guess where that isn't true? It's not true in marriage. You don't have the right to not give your wife her conjugal rights. You don't have a right to not give to your husband his conjugal rights. Now, we hear rights, and we're like, whoa, you're making sex sound like a duty, <laughs> right? Here's what one scholar says. Some have found this idea that Paul would use a language of right or debt, or duty, or obligation in marriage to seem strange. It reminds a reader that the biblical marriage has always contained covenantal ideas that involve contractual responsibilities and duties. Right from the beginning in the creation story, when man and woman make a public statement of moving away from their parents to be together in marriage, the contract has involved sexual relations, and they shall become one flesh. The duty involved here in no way implies a lack of love or a lack of sexual desire on the part of either party. It is simply a part of what marriage is. Fourth, did you notice that Paul says that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband and the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife. And y'all, this was groundbreaking in Paul's day. In the Greco-Roman world that Paul inhabited, modesty was the unbending criterion and expectations of the free woman. It was understood that every respectable woman needed to be a virgin and could have sex in marriage with no one but their spouses. But this was not true for men. Males were expected to have sex with their wives and their servants and prostitutes and even boys. Men could essentially force themselves on anyone below them in the social order, and they could have sex with anyone but the wife of a man with equal status. In fact, y'all, there is no natural Greek or Latin word for male virginity. The man's penis was called the necessity. And the idea was that men could sleep with prostitutes as a safety valve for their lust to keep them from sleeping with another man's wife. Moderation was for men what chastity was for women. You, 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 you take that in, it's a double standard. It says that wives, your bodies belong to your husband, right? Alone, but 
If you're a man, your body does not belong to your wife. You are free in their culture to do what you want so long as you are not coming on to someone of equal or higher status. And when Paul writes this to the church, it is groundbreaking. You know what he's saying? That is that may be how they live in Corinth, but that is not how we go about marriage in the gospel. In the gospel, man, your body is your wife's. In the gospel, woman, your bodies is your husband. In the gospel, woman, give to your man his conjugal rights. And men, in the gospel, give to your wives their conjugal rights. That was groundbreaking and earth-shattering. Why would Paul go to such lengths? It's because some were calling something good not good, that God made very good all the way back in the beginning. Beloved, I want y'all to repeat this. Sex in marriage is gloriously good. Say that. All right. If you are married... God says it's holy to go pray in your prayer closet. It's holy to gather with the saints and not forsake the assembly of God's people. It's holy to have your favorite chair and your favorite coffee brewing to sit there and to read God's word. That's holy. It's holy to give of your resources. It's holy to share your faith. And your bedroom is holy. It is holy when you are naked and unashamed before your own spouse. Husbands, Sheila Ray Gregory wrote a book entitled The Great Sex Rescue, and she encourages us to make it our aim to please our wives that pleasure in marriage should not be one-sided. Be curious. Listen. Get feedback. Take your time. Learn what they desire. Wives, it is good that you make it your aim to please your husband. It is good that you to initiate It is good that you flirt. It is good that you pursue him. Do not get caught in the rhythm where initiation is always happening one-sided. That too defrauds. I had Zach read selected scriptures this morning, and those were intentional. James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Your salvation is a gift. Your sanctification is a good gift. And sex in marriage with your own spouse is a good gift that comes from above. If you read Song of Solomon, you'll hear the woman talking about his arms, right? His legs, his hair, his strength. 
And you'll hear the man talking about her eyes and her body parts. And then you'll see that the marriage is not consummated. Love is not awakened until the right time. And the right time is when they get married. Let us not call bad what God calls good. Did you hear Proverbs 5? The man is telling his son, son, delight in the wife of your youth. Drink water from your own cistern. Be drunk with her love. Sex and marriage is good, family. But why, right? Let's move to the second point. Why? Like, like I'm a why person. Like, if you tell me something to do, why? Right? I I don't usually do well with just because. I, I need to know why. And Paul says, yeah, I got some whys for you. So here are some good purposes of sex and marriage. Did you notice in this section, Paul gives us one reason. And this has led some to say incorrectly that Paul's theology of sex is jaundiced. It seems like he's implying that the only value lovemaking has in a marriage is if it averts fornication. That's not true, y'all. This is not Paul's magnum opus on sex. This is a pastoral letter written to a church addressing this thing. But since we're on the subject, I do want to do justice to the text and then step back and ask the rest of the Bible, why is sex good in marriage? Now, all of these, I'm going to give you five reasons. And if you're taking notes, they all begin with the letter P. And that is just it's to help you remember it. Why is sex good in marriage? Here's the first. It is good because it provides a means of protection against sexual immorality. Did you catch Paul's reference to Satan in this passage? Look again at, the, at, at chapter 5. He says, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. So come back together again. But did you notice that this whole section is really framed around temptation? So in verse two, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And at the bottom, he says, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying more than this, but he's not saying less than this. He is saying one reason sex in marriage with your own spouse is good is because it protects you both from sexual temptation. Why? Because you aren't the only two living. There's a third person who hates everything God creates, who hates what is good, and he is relentless and trying to tear up what God declares righteous, and that includes your bedroom. This is why our culture is more risque, right? This is why you drive down 220 and you see strip club billboards, right? This is why you scroll on Instagram and, and, and all types of stuff bombard your feed, right? Temptation is everywhere. And Paul is saying one gift, one tool in the arsenal of fighting sexual sin is not by constantly fleeing, 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 running, running, but it's actually turning towards one another and making love. Right? 
Sex, as John Piper says, is one of God's appointed tools. It's a dam against the flood of temptation and fornication in our world. But that's not it, right? It's good because this is the only way procreation happens. In the beginning, God commanded that Adam and Eve be what? Fruitful, and they multiply, and they fill the earth, and they rule, and they subdue it. Now, here's the question. How are they to be fruitful? Sperm from a man with 23 chromosomes must make contact with the egg of a woman with 23 chromosomes. And when sperm and egg connect, new life is born. Science has done a lot with fertility things, but but here's the thing. The science on how we procreate has not changed. It's good. And it's good because we're made in the image of a triune God who exists as one God and three distinct persons. And it's a loving, beautiful family. Father, Son, and Spirit, each equal in dignity, each equal in power, each equal in divinity, and yet they're different. And we believe that the scriptures teach that Holy Spirit comes to us. He proceeds from Father and Son, that that they live in this triune family. And so it makes perfect sense that God would make us male and female equal in personhood, equal in deity, not deity, equal in personhood and equal in value and worth, but he would make us different and complementary. So that what? For, for a new life to proceed, you must have difference. You must have male and female. This is why homosexuality and homosexual relationships, they aren't God's divine design. You will never conceive a child in a man-on-man relationship or a woman-on-woman relationship, that is not God's design. His original design is man and woman laying together in the confines of marriage, each complementing each other, each lacking something that's met in the other. And when those two things come together, you have life. And that's why marriage, sex in marriage is good. Because unless providentially hindered, there's always the chance of new life. Sex and marriage is good because it's deeply pleasurable. God wired us for pleasure. You know he could have made you with no taste buds. Your food could be bland. But he's given you five taste modalities for your eating pleasure. He could have made it so that you see things in grayscale, but he's given you the ability to see millions of color for visual pleasure. He could have made us to procreate very pragmatically, but he didn't. He added pleasure to it. John O. wrote this in his book, um, We Go On. 
He says, when you're soaring on the highest pleasures, don't you wish they never end? Sex is the case in point. Who wants that to end? It offers euphoria and intimacy and acceptance and belonging. It puts a do not disturb sign on the door of your heart so that anxiety is not welcome for the moment. It provides a welcome amnesia that J. Cole raps about. You are not thinking about paying the bills or a meeting when you're making love. You're lost in the fullness of that joyful moment. I love that because in the moment of love making, guess what's not knocking on your door? Grief says you can't come here right now. This wayward child that keeps me up for the moment when we're intimate, I'm not allowed to think about you right now. What pleasure in sex does is it reminds us of the beautiful and good and holy and otherworldly good things. Alerts in your phone don't matter. Your problem with your boss at work, it don't matter. What you're about to eat in six hours, it don't matter. You're caught up into something that draws you in. Here's another one. It's for the public good. And I'll confess, guys, I've been doing a lot of reading, and this, this was not on my radar, but I embrace it. Sex in marriage between your own spouse, it protects the public good. That a guy by the name of Christopher Ash, he says, according to Christopher Ash, the, the public good encompasses the benefits of ordered and regulated sexual relationships in our society. Undisciplined and disordered sexual behavior must be restrained, for it carries with it a high social and personal cost in family breakdown, destructive jealousies, resentments, bitterness, and hurt. Ordered behavior is to be encouraged because it has benefits that extend far beyond the couple to the couple's children and to the couple's neighbors and to the wider networks of relational society. Did you catch that? One of the best ways we love the world around us is by faithfully loving our own spouses. When Christians faithfully love their own spouses and not their neighbor's spouses, we don't destroy families. We don't have dads and moms getting divorced because someone has been unfaithful and now this 13-year-old boy has to grow up without daddy being in the home. That's the public good if we would just love and make love to our own spouses. It's a physical act. This is the fifth one that promotes deep unity and connection. Tim and Kathy Keller write, the Bible basically says, do not unite with someone physically unless you are willing to unite with them covenantally, emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Do not become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person 
without becoming vulnerable in every way because you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. And marriage is a covenant. They go on to write that the Bible likens our relationship with the Lord in covenantal, but also in wedding language. Jesus is called the bridegroom, and the church is called the bride, right? And what you often see in the Old Testament is covenant renewal ceremonies. And that's when Israel, by God's design, were called to a specific place, and they were called to prepare their hearts, and they were called to ready their lives, and they were called to rehearse and remember and read. Why? Because their hearts would often go astray. They would go astray, and God would say, come back to me. And it would go astray, and God would say, come back to me. Keller goes on to say, the Kellers go on to say, that sex and marriage functions the same way. Your marriage was consummated on your wedding night. And one of the ways that you keep recommitting to your spouse is through the marriage bed. That when you lay down with your spouse, what you're telling them, my body is your body and yours alone. My heart is your heart. And by God's grace, yours alone. My money is not my money. It's ours together. This is why it's good, beloved. It serves God's multifaceted purposes. All right. How many of you have taken standardized tests before? Raise your hand. All right. Good job. You know exactly how what I'm about to say. So you've taken standardized tests, and there's a reading section. And in the reading section, you get this four or five um, paragraph story, short story that you have to read. And then at the end of it, it's like 10 questions that you have to answer about the story that you just read. And so here's the thing. Test takers tell you, hey, just glance over the questions before you read the story. Just get familiar with the questions and let the questions shape what you read. And then you read the story and then you, you have to answer the questions and you pull your number two pencil out and you, you've already read the story and you get question number 10. And you're like, oh, A is true. But then you look like, wait a minute, B is also true. And then you go down one more and you're like, whoa, C is also true. And then you say, oh, D is also true. What, what is E? All of the above. Beloved, when you make love to your own spouse, is it pleasurable? Yes. Might it bring forth new life? Yes. Does it protect you both? Yes. Is it for the public good? Yes. Does it bind you together in a new way? Yes. And here's the thing. I guarantee you, none of you are making love to your spouses thinking, oh, this is for the public good. <laughs> right? 
I, I, that's not on my mind. But here's the thing, just because you don't see it and understand it in the moment doesn't mean that that's not happening. It is good for manifold reasons. Here's our last point. There is great power to enjoy the goodness of sex in your marriage. There is great power to enjoy the goodness of sex in your marriage. Look, y'all, I'm not a fool. I'm a pastor. And I know that when you talk about sex in marriage, it can bring up a lot of pain for a lot of people. I know that some of you are like, man, I just wish she would pursue me. And some of women, man, I wish that he would attend to me. A man, we had this stuff that went on so long ago, man, and it just keeps haunting us and coming up over and over and over again. I, I get it, right? Like, like, I'm telling you that it's good, but your experience of it in your marriage has not always been good. And so you leave here with a bit of distaste in your mouth and bitterness in your heart. And I want to remind you that your bedroom is not beyond the scope of God's redeeming grace. God can show up and heal what is broken. He can bind up the deepest wounds. He can make you both radically new and different people. And what has been painful can become again by his grace a source of pleasure. Here's the thing, beloved. If you spend time with couples who've been married longer than you, they'll remind you of this. We were newlyweds, and man, we were fighting, and it was hard in certain seasons. And God's saving grace to us, just being around older couples who had endured some stuff and who, who, who were farther along in their journey than we were, and they were such blessings to us. And so I'm here to tell you that God is in the business of healing what is broken. Now, how do we know? We know because Paul has already said it. He says, do you not know that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God? So Paul is, Paul is not sparing any punches to sexual sin and harm. It is hell worthy. But he goes on to say, but such were some of you, but you've now been washed You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Paul also says that I am convinced of this, that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus. He will sustain you until the end. And on that day, you will be pronounced guiltless because the Lord is faithful. We make the grave mistake in thinking that sexuality and, and sex in marriages are immune from the change and transformation and healing work of the gospel. We believe that God gives us the necessary graces right here and right now through Jesus and that it can work its way into our bedrooms.
and into the way that we relate to our spouses. First, beloved, by faith, you cannot sever your bedroom from the realm of God's sovereign mercy. You have to believe that God is at work, not just in a more consistent, quiet time, not just in moving you to pray more, but he is also at work in repairing sexual brokenness and harm. That's not out of bounds for him. Second, by faith, we cannot sever the cross of Jesus and how it informs our relating with our spouses sexually. you got to understand that the cross is where all of our short sexual shortcomings have been atoned for. Because before any sexual sin is a sin against your spouse, it's a sin against the Most High God first. The same God who commands us to flee sexual immorality is the same God who commands that we not withhold sex in marriage. And here's the thing. If you're a withholder or someone who is broken, it's both atoned at the cross of Christ. Both. And the same cross atones for the sins of the spouses whose sexual longings are out of place. Both, we both meet at the cross. And being drawn to Jesus, beloved, isn't just for the forgiveness of our sins. The gospel brings new life. That old person died. And we have to keep, by the Spirit, putting that person to death. The Holy Spirit now indwells God's people. And your body now is a temple for the Most High God. And we cannot Detach the fruit of the Spirit from the fruit of the Spirit in our sexual relating to our spouses. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And that applies to your spouse. Considering them. Counting them better than you. Laying aside your longings for their good. And the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And not a joy that every need has to be met in another image bearer. But a joy that all of your needs are ultimately met in Him. And a peace. A peace, a longing to be reconciled to God and your spouse and patience, a commitment in the bedroom to try week after week and year after year to change and grow in maturity and granting the other person time to heal and to forgive and to be transformed by the gospel. And the fruit of the spirit is kindness. Not lashing out and using your words to hurt, but to be tender and understanding. And the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, slowing down to listen. And it's patience, 
and it's self-control. When things are rocky and you hear not today, maybe tomorrow, it doesn't send you off this emotional ledge and this, this, this angering panic because your needs aren't being met right there in the moment. But the fruit of the Spirit says tomorrow's coming. It's okay. And this theology of the body, maybe you are hesitant to give your body back, but then you see Jesus on a cross who gives his body to his bride to be slaughtered. He says, here, here is my body and it's yours. And by the gospel, we can have the same attitude. We can say, here, husband, or here, wife, I give you my body. And fourth, the gospel actually reminds both parties that your union points to something greater, namely God. Did you catch what Paul says? He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited amount of time. So both parties are in agreement and the time is actually short and not long. Why? So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then come back again. What in the what's the relationship between sex in the bedroom and prayer? Like why? You know why? It's because your heart was not just made for another person. It was made for intimacy with him. And Paul says that's the only reason. It's the only way you have permission is when you're going to the throne of grace. Your heart was not just made for an earthly spouse, but your father in heaven. And when we go to his throne, he satisfies us and he gives us all we need to then go back down and relate to our spouses horizontally. May God do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the parts of it that uh, are sometimes hard or maybe even unclear. We thank you that we can wrestle with your truth. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've started this great work in us and that you'll complete it. We thank you that the bedroom and how we relate sexually to our spouses, that matters to you so much. We thank you that you are in the business of not only redeeming people, but also putting things back together and mending and healing us sexually. Father, I pray grace upon grace for our marriages and also pray for those who are single and young. I pray that you will meet them right there where they are and be God and king and spouse and husband. Do this for your glory, we pray. Amen.